turn to Psalm 65. We're going to look at Psalm 65 together. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grains to for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and they sing together for joy. This is the word of the Lord our God. Thanks be to God. So historically and globally, the Christian church has marked the 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday with a season called Lent. And keeping with this sort of Lenten tradition and its timing between two sermon series that North Cross Church is doing on the life of David, I hope to lead us into some self-examination of our own hearts using the words of David. So we're spending Sunday mornings, we've been spending Sunday mornings looking at the Psalms, the words of David, on the topics of prayer and our emotions. For the last few weeks, we've discussed what would generally be called negative emotions, right? We talked about anger, we talked about shame, Andrew talked about grief. This morning, we're gonna focus on a positive emotion. We're gonna look at gratitude or thankfulness. But before we kind of look at connecting those grateful moments to God in prayer in Psalm 65, would you join with me in praying to God for our time and his words this morning? <sighs> Father, I confess that, um, that I'm really excited about this passage. Um, I'm excited about trying to talk about gratitude. And I pray that you would be with these words, that you'd be with um, our time together. Lord, I, I also confess that this is a tumultuous time to lead a church. And Lord, I pray that you would warm our hearts and guide our thoughts um, as we take in the announcement about two services and as we shift and transition to your scriptures. Lord, maybe that looks like shelving some of those thoughts and maybe that looks like bringing them to bear on this word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would guide us in that. And most of all, Jesus, would you reach out to us? Would you pursue us and invite us in to the rich feast that is this word, that is your words to us? You are God who speaks. And Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear your words this morning. 
Lord, would you help us to see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. In your name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So I kind of tipped my hand, but I want to begin with a confession. I often feel defeated by the should behind gratitude. Uh, Personally and culturally, gratitude can give off mixed feelings. It can give off joy on the one hand, but it also can kind of give off guilt and cynicism on the other. Oftentimes, there's kind of this well-meaning push for gratitude in the face of our disappointments, right? Gratitude often sounds like advice we give to each other. Count your blessings, okay? And there's nothing wrong with that advice, but gratitude can also seem like a subtweet, right? Hashtag first world problems. Sometimes we say it that way, as if your sadness is illegitimate because you have more blessings than a less resourced person, or you have more gifts than a less developed country. But the Bible pushes against this cultural notion of how gratitude should work. Honestly expressing our sadness, that is lament or grief that Andrew preached about last week, lament often leads to feelings of gratitude. For instance, Psalm 65, our passage this morning, there is this instance of responding to God, honoring and answering a sadness that the David the psalmist has given to him. And so sadness is not pitted against gratitude. Sadness and gratitude are meant to work together. I love the way that there's a Christian counselor I enjoyed named John Cox. He describes this beautifully. John Cox likes to imagine, imagine is the key word. He likes to imagine Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden after they've sinned big time, right? And they're barred from paradise by the angel with the flaming sword. They're covered in shame and covered in animal skins. And when all of a sudden God calls, right, sorry, then they're facing the world before them. It's brimming with good and brimming with evil. When all of a sudden God calls out to them from heaven, hey, Adam, hey, Eve, you're going to need this. And they look up and all of a sudden out of the sky, you see one of those like plastic lunchbox looking first aid kits. You know what I mean? They kind of latch open and close with a big red cross on the top. And it's, and it's flipping end over end over end right in their direction. And it lands with a clunk on the, on the ground. And Adam and Eve kneel over this sort of first aid kit from heaven and they open it up. And inside are two holy emotions, gratitude and sadness. They're God's gifts. Humans need sadness. We need to, sadness for the bad things, the pain, the ugliness of life. But we also need gratitude. We need gratitude for the good things, right? The glory, the beauty of life. We need both not to be used against each other for one to dominate the other, but we need both to be used as needed in a world filled with such good things and such bad things too. In addition to shooting us by pitting gratitude and sadness against each other, a second misunderstanding of gratitude culturally assumes that you can have an attitude of gratitude without a practice of gratitude. There's an assumption out there that you can have an attitude of gratitude without a practice of gratitude. I love the way that Brene Brown illustrates this. She says, how strange is it to think that you can consistently feel gratitude without practicing it? And she compares 
the gratitude attitude with her yoga attitude. <laughs> Brene owns yoga clothes. In fact, she wears yoga pants on the regular and yoga shoes on the regular. She has a mat somewhere in her house that is in a closet, but she would never publicly do a yoga position in front of other people. <laughs> Why? Because her yoga attitude, her clothes, her shoes, her mat, would only get her so far in practicing downward dog in front of others. She would awkwardly and inflexibly fail at yoga. Why? Because she has no yoga practice. <laughs> she only has yoga attitude. She never does downward dog. She never practices those things. Likewise, expecting an attitude of gratitude without regularly practicing is a recipe for hurt and failure and frustration. Does that make sense? And so Psalm 65 is actually combating this cultural idea that gratitude is just purely some attitude that wells up inside of us and instead provides a template for us to practice this emotion of gratitude. Psalm 65 gives us sample life categories when things go well, areas of abounding beauty that we can pray back to God, that we can thank God for. We can say, how good of God to give me this. So in a sentence, Psalm 65 corrects our misunderstandings of gratitude and directs our emotional practice of gratitude. Our Psalm does this by inviting us to thank God for his stunning salvation, his comprehensive creation, and his plentiful providence. And I know words like salvation and creation and providence are these words that we use so often in the church and we rarely define, but I'm gonna let the words of the Psalm beautifully do that this morning, all three of those terms and definitions. But our sermon outline in the bulletin or projected behind me is going to tell us these three acts of God. And we're gonna follow these. We're gonna follow these three reasons the psalmist David prays to God. Three reasons we can feel gra grateful about the way that life works, the way things are. And we see this in verses one through five. They describe the sights of God's stunning salvation. Second, verses six through eight, describe the contours of God's comprehensive creation. And third and finally, verses nine through 13, describe the playfulness of God's plentiful providence. As usual, let's begin at the beginning in verses one through five and look at God's stunning salvation together. So if you look there with me, before Psalm 65 describes what salvation, what about salvation to thank, verse one instructs us how to thank. Our translation reads, praise is due to you, O God. Most Hebrew scholars actually think this is a pretty poor translation. More literally, the Hebrew reads here, to you, O God, silence is praise. To you, O God, silence is praise. We often think of prayer, of giving thanks or praise for that matter, as speaking words, right? Prayer for us is speaking, oftentimes, and that's a huge part of it but we kind of think of prayer only as speaking silently in our heads or speaking out loud in a group or maybe muttering to the ceiling, tiles or fan or lights. But in verse one, there's a suggested awe to fall silent, to be still, to recognize who God is, that God's presence, his goodness and will are often beyond our words to describe. So be still, light a candle, draw a bath, sit under tall trees next to running water, or just turn your phone off. That goes for me too. 
From the get-go, then, gratitude requires patient silence, but also patient humility, personal humility. If we're honest, these are so hard. Why are they so hard? What are we missing? Why is it so hard to be still? In a short story, Dismemberment, Wendell Berry attempts to describe the challenges and benefits of a quiet gratitude. Wendell Berry helpfully writes, about, uh, writes out his main character, Andy Catlett's thought stream. These are these thoughts that, fit, that kind of flit between humiliating and humble. Thoughts that I can totally relate to as a human being on this planet, and I think you can too. And here's one quote from it. And so he, Andy, is continually reminded of his incompleteness within himself, his native imperfection as a human being, his failure to be attentive, responsible, grateful, loving, happy as he ought to be, his oppositions always fragmented and made painful by complicity in what he opposes. But this humbled self-reflection can shift, often shifts, to humble gratitude. Andy goes to sit and to do nothing and to wait, oppose nothing, put words to no argument. He permits no commotion by making none. By keeping still, by doing nothing, he allows the given world to be a gift. So I'll say that again. By keeping still, by doing nothing, he allows the given world to be a gift. Through Andy Catlett, Wendell Berry is underlying two truths from the Psalms first stanza. Being still is actually an active effort. But that effort's worth making. Why? Because in the stillness, in the doing nothing, gratitude can well up. It allows the given world to be a gift. The second truth of Psalm 65 that Andy Catlett reinforces is this. Gratitude begins with the often difficult but honest truth. I don't deserve. I don't deserve. Andy Catlett's all too familiar incompleteness, failure, fragmentation, and, com and complicity in what he opposes are just 21st century ways of saying what King David says in this passage, right? King David describes in verses three and four the iniquities, those things that twist in on himself and the transgressions, those things that he does outside of himself that estrange him from relating to God and to other people around him. He needs God to atone. That is, God has to bring David to God, into his courts, into his very presence, because David and you and I cannot get there on our own. This is our story, and this is our need as well. I don't deserve. I don't deserve. But it's hard not to think that we are deservers. Yet oftentimes, the more I oppose what's wrong, the more I keep the rules, the more I try and do the right thing, and I see myself keeping my promises, all this leads to more what I think I deserve. I deserve what I want. I deserve better than I have even. And, all, and if I get what I want, it's about time. And if I don't get what I want, the world and God are just unfair. But salvation is both the very thing that we can be grateful for, as well as the very thing that makes us grateful. Salvation is both a thing that we can be grateful for, but it also makes us grateful. Salvation is at least this. It's a lot of things, but it's at least this. Jesus saves me from my personal prison of entitlement. 
Jesus saves me from envying others what I do not have but feel I deserve. Verse four, God chooses and brings near. He satisfies us with his goodness and holiness. Verse five, God answers us by his awesome deeds, answers us by his righteousness. But how do we dwell in God's courts? How are we satisfied with the goodness of God's house, the holiness of God's temple? According to the letter of Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus's blood has given us the confidence to enter into God's presence, his holiness. Jesus's flesh opened up a new and living way to enter into the heavenly temple of God. Jesus has tenderly, his painstakingly washed our bodies and our consciousness clean. And so as we trust in Jesus, as we concede our guilt and receive forgiveness in its stead, we go from deservers to receivers. We go from one up over everyone to one down to God. We go from holding the center of a spinning merit-based universe, white knuckling it, to a charity case who gets to freely feast with Jesus and the now thoroughly international house of Zion, Ihaz. <laughs> Couldn't resist. After all, <laughs> verse, five, verse five tells us that God's movable feast for poor, pitiful wretches, wheresoever we are, this parte extends to the ends of the earth and to the farthest seas. Listen to the way that G.K. Chesterton describes the grateful feeling that comes from honest humility. I love this quote. We must certainly be in a novel. And what I like about this novelist, God, is that he takes such trouble about his minor characters. <laughs> That's us. And Chesterton wrote of a fellow writer's profoundly religious temperament like this. He conceived of himself as an unimportant guest at one eternal and uproarious banquet. He conceived of himself as an unimportant guest at one eternal and uproarious banquet. <laughs> to see God as such a personally attentive writer, to see salvation as such an eternal and uproarious banquet, this is the feel of gratitude. But even as verse five offers a worldwide description of God's splendid salvation, verse six pivots our gratitude toward the world itself. Point two is talking about God's comprehensive creation in verses six through eight. Psalm 65 intentionally describes the world as God's creation by emphasizing his involvement in the all-powerful and expansive details. Look at verses six and seven, and the display of God's power there. God is belted with strength, securely sets the mountains, calms the wild waves, stills the seas, places every human peace in its place. In the beginning of everything, God made all things exist, even though things like mountains didn't have to be. He ordered the disordered seas by his steadfast strength. Verse eight tells us his power extends. It extends as a sign to the ends of the earth and includes the easternmost sunrise and the westernmost sunset of the horizon. And we need reminders like this. We need creation descriptions like Psalm 65's to re-enchant the reality we live in. 
God purposefully phrases Psalm 65 as exalted poetry. He could have written a high school biology textbook. He chose not to. He chose to write poetry. He could have gotten into plate tectonics and magma formations and tidal patterns, but he chose to put it like this. And here's my thought. Too often, good advances in technology and science, good advances, can be used to crowd out a God we only invoke to explain what we don't understand, the so-called God of the gaps. We use to explain things we don't get. Or we turn to a spare tire God who's only there to help us when we're in trouble, when we can't manage to do something on our own as a human species or a human individual. The God of Psalm 65, the God of the Bible, of reality is much bigger and he's much more involved. We can see how God's involvement in the creator world matters to our feeling of thankfulness by comparing two descriptions of reality written at roughly the same time. Here's the first description of reality. I want you to compare and contrast them. That's influenced by the scientist Francis Bacon and his view of the world as a lifeless tool for my individual disposal. If there's a buzzing noise, somebody's making a buzzing, buzzing noise. And the only reason for making a buzzing noise that I know, that I know of is because you are a bee. Then he thought another long time and said, and the only reason for being a bee that I know of is making honey. And then he got up and said, and the only reason for making honey is so I can eat it. That, of course, is Winnie the Pooh <laughs> from A.A. Milne's The Winnie the Pooh book. And I'm really loading the deck here, as you can see. But my thought is it's a serious satire of how egotistically we view the universe. This overly practical, self-centered posture kind of quickly leads to consumerism. Honey, bees, all of life exists for me and my personal pleasures alone. And here's a second description, influenced by Christianity and the view of the world as God's carefully curated creation. It's like the verses of six through eight of Psalm 65. Here's the second description. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color of brindled cow, for rose moles and all in, strimp and stipple upon trout that swim. Fresh fire-cold chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pierced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim, all things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how? With swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. That description of reality, roughly the same time, written roughly the same time as A.A. Milne's, is from a Jesuit priest named Gerard Manley Hopkins. And it's a poem called Pied Beauty. In a world charged with the grandeur of God. Notice how Hopkins' posture and practice works. It's wonder. It's wonder. With a sense of fun and mystery, at a capital A, another. If gratitude at salvation reconnects us to God, then Hopkins' way of feeling gratitude at creation begins to reconnect us with the world around us. He believes all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Colossians 1, verse 16. Or to quote Hopkins again, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his. To the Father, through the features of other man's faces. 
The practice of gratitude at the plentiful providence, our third and final point in verses 9 through 13, this kind of just builds on our previous two points of thanking God for studying salvation and also for his comprehensive creation. And it builds in that kind of quiet humility we just talked about in verses 1 through 5, and that sort of sense of wondrous fun and mystery at work in verses 6 through 8. Notice the shift in verse 9 away from the mountains and the seas and the horizons and towards everyday, seemingly ordinary parts of life. Natural events. Psalm 65 recategorizes these ordinary natural occurrences as providence. That is, by revealing God's involvement in them on the regular with abandon and with abundance. Beginning with verses 9 through 10, the psalmist David credits God with watering by rivers and, and rain, fertilizing in furrows and ridges, and growing grain with preparation and with blessing. But even here, David's gratitude can't help itself. The Hebrew word he uses for water in this passage in verses 9 and 10, this word actually means to make overflow. God's plenty, his bounty, his overabundance surges in verses 11 through 13. The spring and the summer's produce becomes a crowning touch. The wagon's tracks, literally in the Hebrew, drip fatness. Then the pastures, the hills, the meadows, the valleys irrepressibly desire to play dress up in their finest clothes. A belt of joy, a frock of flocks, a coarse coat of wheat, and they shout and sing together for joy. Certainly, verses 9 through 13 tell us God is not cheap. He spares no expense. He goes well beyond usefulness and into beauty. He's also not cautious. He goes well beyond efficiency and into excess. Look again at verse 12. The Hebrew word translated pastures actually literally means something more like desert grasslands or wilderness. So God is not just producing plants like grain that are needed for human beings to feed us. God is also clothing a wilderness drainage ditch, wadis, with fragrant flowers. God is crowning a hilltop barren with a wreath, a wreath of eye-catching wild blossoms. These plants and these terrain are not useful for human beings to live on. You can't live there for long, but they are pleasurable, purely for the pleasure of humans to sense and to ultimately worship God. You see, gratitude begins with God providing useful things like food. But gratitude does not properly end until thanks is given to God for beauty and goodness. So, how do we take in all this usefulness, all this beauty, all this goodness? Or to use Brene Brown's words, how do we practice gratitude so we have an attitude of gratitude? First, we slow down and we pay attention. Slow down and pay attention. Verse one again, to you, O God, silence is praise. When we choose to see the splendor of that shadow or that reflection or that glimmer of light in another person's eye, we can never unsee it. Second, we give thanks even when we don't feel like giving thanks. Scientifically, it's experimentally proven. Giving thanks improves your overall mood. It leads to more joy and gratitude. And we know 
that Thanksgiving does not come naturally? How do we know if you have children or you've been around children, why else do parents teach their children to say thank you over and over and over again? It is not natural. Third, the motivation to pay attention and to say thanks, to give thanks, is that we are in a bigger story. We are in a bigger story, the story of a God who made the mighty mountains and stills the stirring seas. The story of a God who scatters roadside blue bonnets haphazardly, bursting forth into blossom for no other purpose than the God who sustains every living thing prizes beauty. And finally, we believe in a story of a God who saves, who generously, extravagantly gave his only son, Jesus, on a cross to rescue us into a relationship with him. Jesus' life for our life. What an undeniable expression of God's love. A love that is life-changing. So how do I, how do we, how do, I, how do we address our glass half-empty moments? How should we try to live our lives? I love the very simple way that the poet Mary Oliver puts it in a poem called Sometimes. She says this, instructions for living life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell others about it. Instructions for living life. Pay attention. Be astonished. Tell about it. That's why we're here on Sunday. That's why we're making room for others on Sunday. So we can pay attention, be astonished, and tell others about it. It, the over the top, the generous, extravagant, into excess salvation, creation, and providence of the Lord our God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the way it challenges us to see the world and hear the world and taste, touch the world in a different way. But Lord, would you also make it a comfort to us, a comfort to all the ways that we feel inadequate to the task? Would you, by your spirit, fill us? Would you, by your son's death, remind us of the many ways that we are loved and the many ways that this spread around us is is a extension of your character. Lord, would you help us to give eyes to see that and ears to hear it. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.